in your mind. All in your mind. All in your mind. All in your mind. In your mind. Hey everybody, it's All In Your Mind. Uh, we're back again. I'm Rick Rowan, creative director here at Graphic Audio. And as usual for All In Your Mind podcasts, I have with me my compatriot, Dwayne Mr. Dwayne Beeman. Beeman. Yes. That's right. Uh, our production manager. I also have uh, one of our creative directors, Terrence Aselford. Hello. Who is very specifically related to the subject at hand. But our especially special guests uh, for this podcast are Arthur Michael J. Sullivan and Robin Sullivan, authors of the uh, Legends of the First <laughs> Empire. And as, as you may be able to tell, I don't have a whole lot to do with this particular project. Terrence is the director of Legends of the, uh, the First Empire, particularly uh, the book that is available now is uh, the first book in what is now a six book series, uh, Age of Myth. And parts one and two are currently available. Available at www.graphicaudio.net. We, we we kind of introduced uh, uh, Michael and Robin. Um, I should say that uh, you know Michael is obviously the, the author. He's the, the 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 credited author. But but uh, Robin is a very important of team uh, important part of Team Sullivan. I would say yeah. based on my uh, research. Uh, All I do is write the books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she does everything else. That, that's the one-tenth, yeah, the writing the, the books. Yeah. I do the nine-tenths. You would think that's a lot, but not really. Robin, you act basically as his personal editor. You, you're mm -hmm. the first person to read and to, and to kick back comments. You're also uh, his advocate in many ways. Mm -hmm. uh, he wouldn't, uh, I'm sure Michael would be the first one to say that he wouldn't be published now if it weren't for your efforts. Very Correct, true. yes. Or the second one to say, because I said it. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, also a business partner and and, uh, and in some capacity, I guess, his wife as well. That's, <laughs> that, that's the official title. I'm the, the, official the wife. Title. The wife, right? <laughs> so so, so it, it seemed only appropriate that we'd, in, we'd include Robin in our little uh, uh, get-to-know-the-authors adventure here. Um, let's uh, let's uh, talk a little bit. I've got. I went straight to Wikipedia, and you can correct me on it if anything <laughs> is wrong. And to give an overview for listeners, uh, uh, Michael started writing books to teach his daughter who su suffered from dyslexia how to read. Is that true? No. <laughs> right off the bat. Start right out of bed. There's a component That's of that. Weird. There is a component of that in there. Uh, the, yeah, the, there is some part of that. No, I actually started writing when I was 13. Oh, okay. Uh, I got done reading Lord of the Rings. There was nothing else like it. So I said, well, I'll just keep writing myself and I'll make my own stories. I actually started to do a continuation of Lord of the Rings and then realized that was really stupid. Yeah. Uh, why don't I do something on my own? So I, I did that. So I wrote for about 20 years. And the last 10 years, I was seriously trying to get published. And it didn't, didn't mm -hmm. pan out. I, I, I was sending uh, stuff out to a non-contracted agent. Never went anywhere. Finally, I gave up and started an advertising agency. Uh, but after that, my daughter, who was then herself reaching around 12, 13, uh, didn't like reading because she had dyslexia and she had struggled with it. Right. So I was trying to get her anything I could do to get her to read more, and one of those was picking up Harry Potter, which mm. had just come out. And so I thought, well, this is, this is supposed to be a good book. I'll see if she likes that. And I just started reading it myself. Right. And I had such a good time reading it, I thought, well, what the heck? 
I mean, why don't I write? Because I was trying to write much more serious. I was, you know, reading classics. I was reading all kinds of stuff that are Nobel Prize and, and, and Pulitzer Prize winning stuff. And it's kind of dry, let's yeah. face it. But when I got the Harry Potter, I was like, this is fun. I'm just going to write this for the heck of it. And I thought, now I can try and do something that is easy to read, that flows well, that she could probably be interested in. Mm -hmm. And that's how that began. Okay. okay. But you had, uh, as uh, as I understand it, the story is that that you had gotten so discouraged from the the rejection mill that is trying to publish traditionally, that you sort of went on a, a hiatus. I quit for twelve years. That's when I started an advertising agency, and then right. I, I hired Robin as my president, and uh, we did that for twelve years very successfully. Uh, but then I got kind of, I mean. When you're a writer, you just kind of can't. St you're like an addicted fiend, yeah. okay? You just yeah. keep that. Every day, I would take the dog for a walk, and I'd be writing stories in my head, and one of them happened to be about two thieves, and I just kept seeing this all different ways, and I kept years would go by, and I kept rewriting and rewriting. To finally, I said, "All right, well, I'll, I'll break down and actually write this," and I thought maybe something my daughter would be interested in. Yeah, when we had the advertising agency, Mike's aversion to writing was so bad that anytime I try to get him to write copy for an ad or a blog or anything. He's like, nope. Yeah, well, you have to understand, I had been writing literally for probably two decades straight, and my friends had become professors or middle management at major corporations, and one had his own company, and I was exactly where I was when I left high school. I mean, I hadn't gone anywhere. I had just been writing. I was like, I always refer to it as, uh, you know, the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown, because I've been waiting for this dream to come true, and I've been sitting in this one spot, and nothing ever happened. So it was really depressing, because I would literally yeah, yeah. write a novel and then put it in a drawer and start the next one. Yeah. Write a novel, and I thought some of them were really good, but they ended up just going in drawers, and no one ever read them. And that's pretty depressing when you create things. Sure. That's like anything you do and no, you're in a vacuum no one knows about it it's so it's like really depressing so I refused to ever do that again because I was wasting so much of my life so I said I'm not doing that anymore yeah so I, she was saying can you I mean no I'm not writing anything creative anymore I went in complete shutdown mode and, and the interesting thing is when he started writing again after that hiatus when he was writing the the stories that had kind of been building for 10 years he did it with one condition and that was I'm not gonna publish right that was you know which is kind of Weird. You I know? actually put them on the internet. I put them out for free. Yeah. I figured, mm. hey, you can read it and make comments. I think only the no first one. No one knew There's so much out there that you get lost. I had three of them. Oh, did you? Yeah. No one. No one ever made a comment. No one read them. <laughs> I mean, this is back in the '90s. Yeah. And no but the advantage to that was yeah. that you wrote all the books. Yeah. Before you had yeah. to, you know, so the that was story sheer, was intact. That was sheer accident because I was yeah. writing them along, but no intention to publish, as you right. say. And then I got the last one published. Uh, as I was finishing up the last book. So yeah, oh, nothing, okay. hit, nothing hit the street until they were all done. So it allowed me to go back and make sure continuity made sense. And I would get to the end and say, oh, I thought of a great idea how I could really twist the ending. If only I could change that paragraph on page 43 in book two. And I went, oh, you know, I can. You so, still could, yeah. Yeah. I don't know how like and that J.K. Rowling's did it when she's like, I mean, you have to imagine that at some point she's on book five thinking, oh, you know what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's on the shelf. Well, but, but that started a trend. Like, the first time it was kind of by accident. Yeah. But then the idea of writing them all before publishing the first made the story so cohesive that that's what Michael started doing for his other things. That's what he did for The Legends of the First Empire. And that's why, you know, in the beginning when you said it's six books now? Yeah. Because it did, it changed. When he well, started, the, it was supposed the, to be a trilogy. The fifth book sort of inserted itself once you had finished the initial, what was supposed to be a five-book uh, series, Yeah, correct? Yeah, we wanted, it was supposed to be five, and 
when I got the book... It was supposed book, to be three. Well, yeah, originally. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was supposed to be three, but it's a, it, it's a story about a, a war and a foundation of an empire. Well, I got three books into it, and the war is still going on. Yeah. Right. And I kind of figured We're people are going to be a little mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> so I went, I got to keep going. But when, but when I got the, the final book, and at the time it was five, right. uh, I said, look, this last book is way too rushed and it's yeah. you know you're, you're, you're just you're going through it too quickly and uh, there seems to be a natural break point here that you seem to like I can tell you're trying to force it into a book when it really should be too right and so when I gave my feedback back Mike agreed and and by the time he started putting in some of the changes that I wanted it, it did divide nicely in six so now it's definitely six. six. Oh yeah, those books <laughs> have been in the can for a while. Yeah, that's really, <laughs> see, that's really interesting. I will, I, we will actually get into some of what the stories are about in a second, but I want to pursue. No, we're not going to tell anyone what. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's, 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 that would be a spoiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I find really interesting about that is it also uh, it gives you the the ability to calculate release of these things, both mm -hmm. you know, both from a, a from an aesthetic perspective, and also from a, a market Marketing perspective that that the you know you know uh, fantasy is littered with the legions of fans who are waiting for that next book to come out. You know the the you know George R. R. Martin notoriously is. You know, oh yeah, when I used to sell these books in the very beginning of my career, when I was I'd be in bookstores, it'd be like Barnes and Noble, or back then Borders, and I would stand in the front and and she would have bookmarks to hand it out to them, and they would pick up the bookmark and they'd be reading it, and they'd walk out and they'd walk up to me standing at a desk, and they'd look up and go, oh. Look at that. And then one of the very first things they say was, okay, so one thing you'd be guaranteed of, I wrote all the books in advance, so if I get hit by a bus when I walk out of here, you're still going to get the books. And they would go, cool. <laughs> that is cool. That's I think that's an important part. No one ever like yeah. showed concern about me being hit by a bus, though. <laughs> that's it's, true. It was just good. I get the book. They didn't uh, have to worry about it. You know, <laughs> it's like, are, are you contemplating suicide? <laughs> Interesting. Now, and and. Now, one of the things that I gathered from uh, researching you guys on YouTube um, was that your preference would have been for people to read, start to read the story of Elan, which is the the the, the world in which your stories mm -hmm. all take place, or all of the the fantasy stories mm -hmm. take place, um, because it, it was the journey that you took. You you like people to read in publication order, uh, as I understand it. Uh, just because it seemed to me that you felt like you got a handle on things, or they're kind of following your own journey of discovering this world and how it all fits together. But if, if you're one of those who want to have in-story chronology, where you start literally at the beginning of events within a, a timeline, you would want to start with Age of Myth, because it's yeah, uh, all the books are, I mean, you can start pretty much anywhere you want, and I've had people who have done it. I had people start in the middle of series, because what I, one of the things I wanted to do, so my daughter was reading fantasy books, and, and she didn't like, she would get the beginning of a book, and it would end at a cliffhanger, right. and then she'd get to the next book, and it wouldn't begin where it left off, and she'd have to go through the whole book, and the very end, you start getting back to that point, and they'd hang you longer, no. and she hated that, so I didn't want to do that, so I actually made all of my books somewhat complete. I mean, mm. there's a beginning, middle, and end, and you don't have to read the next one. I mean, you could walk away pretty satisfied, and I always wanted to do that. So that was kind of my intent with all of these books. So you literally can start with the Legends of the First Empire, or you can start 
with uh, the Rayer revelations, or you can start with Rayer Chronicles. <laughs> um, <laughs> alert. Sorry. <laughs> Is there another presidential alert coming? <laughs> uh, that was a domestic alert. Okay. <laughs> so, as a result of that, uh, you can jump in anywhere, but I personally do think it's best to jump in with Theft of Swords, just because hmm. of the fact that you're right. As I wrote along, I kind of have in the back of my mind that other people have read these books. So I put in little Easter eggs or right. lead them in a certain way so that if you have read the previous books, it'll make a little bit more sense. Mm. But you won't be lost. And, and even if you had jumped into the, the middle of any series, I generally give you some kind of woven in backgrounds to catch you up to speed. You don't have to read a prologue. You don't have to read the glossary. It should all be there. Right. And that's something that Robin is very adamant about making sure I always do with every book. It, there's, it's, it's a little bit difficult because there actually are three entry points into the series. Hmm. Uh, you know, Terry Pratchett has a lot of entry points into his. Um, a lot of people start with Age of Myth. And then they find they get into Mage of Myth and they're really excited about it and they find out they have the Rhaeira, so then some people will actually jump over to, to it. Mm -hmm. um, but the there's actually three series. The Legends of the First Empire starts with Age of Myth. The Rhaeira Revelations, the very first thing Michael wrote, starts with Theft of Swords. And then there's the Rhaeira Chronicles that starts with the Crown Tower. Now this whole reading and publication order primarily refers to the Rhaeira stuff. Like, mm -hmm. like you can really think of them as like two different closely related series. Right. So if you're going to start with Rhaeira, start with Theft of Swords of Rhaeira. If you start with Legends, then start with Age of Myth. Right. And, and just to put this into context for people who have no idea what we're talking about. Right. Uh, so Rhaeira takes place in a, a similar to, say, medieval England or, or medieval Europe. So that's about the 1300s or so. Okay. Uh, about that time period. That's, that's the, the setting. The other one, I went back 3,000 years to like the Bronze Age. So we're talking about Achilles and Odysseus and all that kind of stuff. So because when you're talking about the Rhaeira stuff, their legends come from the the you know, heroic Greek style period. So I lied <laughs> when I told you what happened. I, and I knew it when I wrote it. This was something that was always in my head. I knew I lied. I told you a myth about how the history got to where it was. And I, I didn't feel right about that, so I yeah. wanted to actually go in and tell people the true story. So, and it would make a lot more sense. Well, that rings true out. with our own human history, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Exactly. You know, that, that, uh, that myths are seldom literal. Yes. <laughs> well, when I first invented it, uh, I, I was emailing a friend of, a high school friend of mine, and I was telling him about like, the backstory, and, and I told him what happened, and he says, that is really sappy. <laughs> that doesn't sound real. I'm like, you know, you're right. But that, and we both agree that it's exactly how it would have been brought down mythologically from the ancient times. That's how they would have interpreted it. I'm like, yeah, okay, so that's great. But I eventually do have to tell the real story, which is what Legends of the First Empire actually is. Interesting. It's the true story from years ago. Let's uh, let's dive into Age of Myths a little bit. Uh, I uh, I'm going to have Terrence read the the actual cover blurb. Okay. Of Age <clears throat> of Myths, and uh, here we go. Age of Myth. Since time immemorial, humans have worshipped the gods they call Frey, truly a race apart, invincible in battle, masters of magic, and seemingly immortal. But when a god falls to a human blade, the balance of power between humans and those they thought were gods changes forever. Now only a few stand between humankind and annihilation. Wraith, reluctant to embrace his destiny as the god-killer. Suri, a young seer, burdened by signs of impending doom, 
and Persephone, who must overcome personal tragedy to lead her people. The age of myth is over. The time of rebellion has begun. Cool. It that is sounds very cool. Can I get it? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, you read that very well. You should get a job in this. <laughs> <laughs> you, might have, you, might have a, you might have a profession in this. In, in post-production, do I to put in a little scoring? Yeah. <laughs> a, little reverb. a little reverb in there. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dwayne can make you sound like a woman and everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dwayne can do anything. <laughs> and has. <laughs> So, we, uh, uh, Terrence, should we dive a little bit into Age of Myth and, and yeah, without giving too much away, it's 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 a big story, and I'm you know I'm enjoying. You've read it, right? Working on. And recorded a lot of it. <laughs> that one's totally in the can. That one is available now. www. <laughs> 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 you need the little promo bing, right. you know, little bing. That's, well, that's what Dwayne is here for. That's, yes. that's his purpose. Um, and you're in production now for the second book. For the second half, for, what for us is the second half of the second book. Mm -hmm. um, we're we're going to be recording that. So I've been busy prepping that part. But I don't, I'm not sure how much to say about anything because everything is a little bit of a spoiler. And, you know, so I, it I don't is. Wanna, you know, well, I, we can talk generic stuff. Uh, you had, you had, uh, when we were conjecturing about what we talk about, you were interested in world building, just generically. The it always interests me. By the time we get anything, that world already exists. The author has created it. And I'm, I'm fascinated by how how you put together this whole world out of nowhere. I, I, that may be something like people acting a asking actors, how do you memorize all those lines? Right. But it's it's not a process that, that uh, you know, uh, we've had to worry with because it's already existing. Right. right. There. But where does this world come from? Well, for legends, uh, a lot of it comes from the fact <clears throat> that there's some aspects of, of Rhaeira and there's some things mm -hmm. mentioned in history. So a lot, th there's a very real reason why the series is called Legends of the First Empire because what Michael was trying to do was to tell the real stories mm -hmm. behind these myths. So when you're in Rhaeira and you hear about this god or you hear about this, you know, ethic, uh, this uh, hero of old, you have certain stories about them, but that's not how it came down in reality. So a lot of what was happening in the Legends of the First Empire was showing the truth behind all those myths and because it was going so far back in time a lot of the things that Michael used to rely on wasn't available you know like the weaponry and horses and those yeah. types of things well yeah I had the it, it's interesting what happens when you're writing and you don't have access to things I wrote another book called hollow world in which I couldn't use pronouns now that makes it difficult yeah. Um, yeah. but in this one of course I took away money I took away horses, I took away most livestock, mm -hmm. I took away uh, archery, um, so it, it makes it much harder to be writing sort of like a medieval fantasy world that doesn't have most of the tropes of a medieval fantasy yeah. world, so that makes it more tricky. But to answer your question directly, how do I come up with the world building, it's, it's, it's much more mundane than you would think, it's not a very exciting answer. I'm, I'm sure there are authors who sit down and just sit there and make worlds because they like that. And, some do. But what I tend to do is I create a story and then I have a character and a character needs to do something and something needs to try and stop them. So based off of that, what do I need? Mm -hmm. So I need this, I need an opposing force. So they will be doing that. Okay, how did they get to this point? I have to have some logical sense. When I was a kid, I did a lot of daydreaming. Funny. Um, <laughs> and I was a really weird daydreamer because I couldn't just imagine something and like I, 
I couldn't just imagine being, you know, the captain of the Starship Enterprise because I was 13 in high school, right? So, I mean, what are the odds? <laughs> but I would have to, I couldn't have a daydream unless I could take myself from where I was to being captain there. So I had to logically build a, a method for me to get to that point. And I, I actually did. I had a great, I could have written a great short story for this. But mm. I actually would build things. If I wanted to be a hero in, like, the next world war or something, I had to figure out a way that I could, at that time, get to that stage. So I got really good at that. So when I would create an event, like a person has to go from one place to another, there's something in the way, what is it? Oh, it's a mountain range. There you go, there's a mountain range right. here now. Why is it the mountain range is hard to get over? And I have to keep adding these elements, and those elements beget other elements, which beget other elements, and eventually at some point I'm like going, oh, you know, I could take that and tie it into that. And those two kind of make sense, and that's how it gets built up. The other thing is you do have to build up way more than you ever use, um, because if you ever no, like J.K. Rowling's or Tolkien, they had these massive worlds and you only get to see a small part. And there's an interesting effect that happens when you do that. If you were to tell someone what you did yesterday, you give the impression, because you start going down dead-end roads, and like, oh, but yeah, that's something else. And you go back, so people give the impression that there is more to their world than they're telling you. And it's an inadvertently almost self-conscious thing. But if you know that information and you don't tell it, it sounds more real than if you're giving me everything you know, it sounds like there's ends and borders at the end of the world. So right. you don't want to do that. So it's, it's what Robin had mentioned earlier was the iceberg effect where you build this giant iceberg, but you only see what's on top. Because yeah. if you yeah. try to explain everything, it's really boring. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, it's, it becomes a massive info dump. Let me tell you yeah. about the economic system and how <laughs> yeah, the yeah. was first used. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but if you know, if you know that, yes. you can give little clues that well, there's the a mechanism thing is, at work. Is uh, it yeah. makes it consistent? Right. Like if I was. I invented the gun for a, a, let's say I invented the gun for a story. Well, I'm not going to go through the metallurgy of how the shell cases were put together, but I do at least have to know how that works so that when I show you that, you know, he pulled the trigger and it didn't go off, well, you just changed physics. Well, no, not really, because let me explain why. What, this yeah. can happen. So knowing it is important. Showing it is usually not necessary, because most of the time, again, it doesn't jam anyway. So yeah. you're good. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Something you said a minute ago about uh, working without something, taking something away from the world. Um, that reminded me of the character of Roan who, who invents things, who mm -hmm. discovers things, and uh, that's... My favorite invention of hers is the pocket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the one thing people don't think of. Yes. But you always see these old movies of medieval, but they always have those little pouches, because, you know, cut purse, right? Because yeah. it's a purse, literally strings it's hanging straight. from your belt, but right. didn't yeah. anyone think about a pocket? Yeah. yeah. But she does. She invents a, a whole number of things. And the fun part about that for me was when the, the Derg you know, frost, flood, and rain come in, and they see what she's doing, and they go, oh, yeah, we've been doing that for years. You know, they, <laughs> right. they had that in their world, but right. it wasn't in, in the world of, of these people. It was yeah. great. And, and Roan is really interesting because she is, she's depicted as, like, this amazing genius, you know, and geniuses are sometimes Crazy. not all yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. and, and there was actually, I can't remember exactly where you found this, Newton. but Newton. So Mike just read something one day that when Newton was trying to um, explore Sir, Sir something, yes. Sir Isaac. Yeah. he no, actually we, we he wanted to see how <laughs> the eye worked, and he actually took a needle and tried putting it. He put in it into his, his eye, eye to see where the and he didn't go blind, which is amazing. <laughs> but yeah, he put it through the people in his eye, and he, and, and he would back there. and he would like feel around back there, and then he'd get different flashes and stuff. 
and, and that just seems like such a bizarre thing to do. So he so had I, Roan do that. I literally Roan, stole that idea. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> actually, Roan didn't do it. She, she was, was trying to do it. She was stopped. She was, she about was stopped. To do it, yeah. Yes, before she did it. Because that kind of shows the crazy, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that was that was good. What they described that. You know, she almost put needle in her. Eye. We can't leave her alone. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. She can't be left alone. That sounds like a great character. Oh yeah, yeah. She is. She's she's terrific. Incredibly creative, but also very very, very flawed and and not broken. through any fault of her own. It's not just eccentricity. She had it put upon her, and she's yeah. suffering wow. as a result. Interesting. Um, so it's it's a very it's a fascinating character to me. Uh, along the lines of world building, one of the things that I, that caught my attention was your resistance to delivering too much information up, up front. The the info dump that uh, I remember in the, uh, the I, I caught some YouTube uh, talk that you that that you gave. Mm -hmm where you were talking about the fact that you always want the last book to be the best mm -hmm. and so you didn't want you want and you and, and you wanted to reveal things about character at a at a at a uh, an interesting pace as opposed to having us know everything about these characters front up front front loading exactly yeah. which is which you know there's a lot of uh, precedent in fantasy yes. for you got to slog through to... Well, there, to are, there, are, there are two things you're actually addressing here, and I'm yeah. trying to keep them both in my head so I can address both of them. Go for it. Number one is uh, the fact that in, like, the 70s on through probably the 90s, there was this habit in fantasy of doing prologues. They do prologues for the fact of getting up to speed. If you've had, anyone's ever seen yeah. the movie Lord of the Rings where they have the voiceover and it tells you the whole history of the ring, that's what that is. Now, actually, right. Tolkien put it in the second chapter when he wrote it, but still, it's the same kind of thing. It's an info dump. Yeah. Just giving you all sorts of information. And that's why a lot of people didn't like fantasy, because it's like, I have to learn someone else's history of their world before I can even get around to the story. Yeah. I hated that. A lot of people hated that. So I had to figure out a way to weave that in to the story so mm -hmm. that I didn't want you to even know how you learned this information. I wanted to, you know, weave it into the background so that, uh, it's a good example. If I have a character say, uh, he looked up at the other character, you now know that that person's taller than this without me having to tell you that. Right. And things like that, you can drop things in, make it easier to digest without the info dumps. I've gotten better at it as I've gone along. Mm -hmm. The other thing, and now I've lost it. Oh, right, the characters. Yeah. So what I wanted to do was, if you write a good, a really good first book, generally you've defined your characters in your world because that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to really get their first readers. Otherwise, it won't. You know, no one's going to read the second book if the first book wasn't good. Right. But inevitably, what that causes is that you completely define that character. So then you get to the third or f second or third book. There's you got nothing, nothing to write about. I mean, right. you, you have to introduce new characters. That's why it, in movies you're like, oh, these new new characters get dropped in. That's that's why we had Puss in Boots and Shrek, right? right. So you have to add <laughs> something new. Where I always felt it was always better if the main characters continued to develop, which is why in Theft of Swords, or rather the Crown Conspiracy, which is the first part of Theft of Swords, you know next to nothing about the main characters when you get done with the book. They're interesting, they're fun, but you don't know anything about their background hmm. or how they got to be who they are. It's a simple story without much de definition. So what, initially, my, my, my earlier critiques that people gave me were like, the characters are really shallow. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, they're supposed to be because, first of all, I'm not publishing this, so I don't care. Right. <laughs> and second, I wanted it to build so that you really learn who they are in the last book. So the last book is the big explosion. That's what everything is ramping up to. So each book, what my intention was, each book would be better than the one before. 
because that's what I would want to read in a series. And when I wrote these books, I wrote what I wanted to read. Hmm. Long story. From a marketing perspective, it sucks. That's a really <laughs> stupid way to write a book, right? And bec but as he said, he wasn't planning on on releasing them. So the the really interesting thing is the people who and and in a lot of respects, uh, Age of Myth is similar, right? I mean, you you don't get uh, as deep into some of the characters until you get further on. Um, one of my favorite characters in in the book is a character by the name of Moya. And in fact, in the first book, I did not like Moya because I thought, oh, she's just a pretty girl. You know, mm -hmm. typical pretty girl. But she's not. There's a lot more to her. It's just that in the space of the first book, Michael didn't have enough time to really delve into her. So when you see her, her later on, when you see her in the second book, and you see more of her personality, and you see more of what she's capable of, and see more of what the heart of her is, What's really great about that is it actually t turned me around on her because I thought she was just kind of, a, you know, a throwaway character. And it turned out she's not at all. She's actually quite an amazing person. That's, that's one of the cool mm -hmm. things if you're writing a long series is you can you can start things off where you, you put a clue in or a character in, but you don't reveal that character until much longer. So the the reader has known about this person like going, wow, this person's much more interesting. Wow, oh my God, they're the main character of the series. You know, it's right, like, right, and, right, and it, it right. transforms, and suddenly, you, you, and then you go back and reread it. A lot of people reread my stuff because they find stuff and they go to it a second time. You go back to the beginning, like going, wow, I had no idea. This person was back here doing the, and I didn't even right. notice. And that, that's what's kind of fun. When you write the entire series first, you can do that stuff. It, now, it, it's Shrek, it's the layers, right? Yeah, it's yeah, the, the layers. 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was just going to say the the one of the one of the things I always uh, am interested with writers is how much they're a plotter and how much they fly by the seat of their pants. You talk to other writers, I think. <laughs> I have. You're not a writer yourself. I right? actually have. Okay. Yes. Uh, so I'm, I've. Uh, I'm starting to get that impression. Yeah. Because okay. <laughs> I'm really interested in the process and how you just. Uh, one of the things that I have discovered is that characters will continually surprise me, mm -hmm. and and when I've done my writing, uh, I frequently put a lot of things in motion that I don't really know where they're going to go, I, and there's always the danger of writing yourself into a corner with something like that. I would think with you having, you know, your entire story written before publication, that that isn't a problem because you have a no, it's still a problem. <laughs> it is still a problem. Okay. Um, uh, well, do characters surpri I mean, I, I, surprise I think you that everyone who starts writing. Yeah. Everyone who begins as a writer always writes discovery writing, which is what you're talking about, making it up as you go exactly. along. You don't plot anything up because you're just having fun, right? Yeah, you're yeah, sitting yeah. on the typewriter or yeah. a computer like, hey, let's go. The typewriter, yeah. how old am I? And you start writing and you and just make stuff up because that's what you're doing. You're basically reading a story as you're writing it, and that's the fun of it. And that's right. what a lot of people enjoy. Then you start writing novel after novel and you realize you're only getting halfway because <laughs> yeah. you yeah. write yourself into situations where, yeah, I don't even know where this is going anymore. <laughs> Why? And um, there's a problem. When you write a novel, almost invariably you get to the halfway point, and almost every writer does. You get to the halfway point and you go, this is awful. <laughs> Why did I even bother? Yeah. And, and you lose interest and you stop. Yeah. And you go on to the next one. And the problem is, also, you also have a problem, like you said. You'll get to a situation where, oh, 
crap, to fix this, I've got to literally rewrite almost everything that I put together, and why did I even bother? I'll go with the new idea, because it's better than this one. Right. Those are the problems, and I did the same thing. Okay. When, I, when I started to actually try my last 10 years to really try and get published, I realized I can't be wasting this amount of time. You're old now. You don't <laughs> have that many years left to write. I was younger then, but the idea was, I thought, well, if I thought more of it out, I would have less chance of getting myself stuck. And I literally just thought it out. I just thought, okay, so this happens, okay, so it's gonna end there, okay, I just gotta get to there. And I might write down three bullet points. And that right. was my outline. Mm. Didn't know I was outlining, because I, I kind of learned in a vacuum. So then I would write. And I noticed that the more I thought it out in advance, the faster I could write, and the better chance I would finish the book. So then I started doing a little bit more, and then I got more and more. But what happens is there, there's a sliding scale that if you outline too much, your story becomes contrived. Right. If you outline too little, you usually have horrible endings. <laughs> it's almost invariably that that's how this works out. So you have to find where you're comfortable with for that slider. If you if you like outline it completely, then you're forcing your characters, like you said, they change. They they want. I it's a famous story that she has. I was writing. Uh, was it winter? No. Persepolis. The last book. And my characters are supposed to be going to this ancient city, and they know how to get there. It's, but it's snowing. It's cold. It's dark. Yeah. They're not going to go there because there's a city, just like ten minutes away. Yeah. And it was just no way. I'm like, I literally had the characters argue with each other exactly the way I was arguing with them, and yeah. half of them wanted to keep going, and half of them <laughs> wanted to go to the city, and they. But I had nothing written in the city, but there was no logical way that these characters, given their motivations and their you know, their personality types, would ever literally go to the city. They want to spend the night in a nice warm bed. Yeah. So I'm like, crap. <laughs> I have to write a whole new chapter for this city. I don't even know what's going to happen there, but I have to do it. So yeah, yeah so the discovery took me that direction. Interesting. And it turned yeah. out to be a really great chapter. Yeah, that, and that's, that's the moral of that story, is he had no idea what those characters were going to do when they went to that town. But then once he started writing it, it, it became one of my favorite chapters. The, the moral of almost everything to do with writing is if it makes you work harder, it makes the book better. Yes. Anything from, the, mm. from a single sentence, when you're, in your, you're, when you're showing rather than telling, you make it better because you're working harder and you're going to take that extra mile. If you have to make something make sense, it's going to make it better. Even if you have to add an extra chapter or two chapters. I, I wrote three paragraphs one time. She made me turn it into three <laughs> chapters. <laughs> wow. there, there, there were these two characters, and the whole point is they're ha supposed to have this really special bond. And Michael wrote like three pages. For those who don't know, this is a Modena and Amelia. Yeah, mm. and, uh, and I read this, and I'm like, mm, this isn't going to cut it, dude. You're going to have to be with these people for a long time. And so what used to be page one of a certain book became page 105 because wow. you had to have months of these two women together but I've in order to found build that, that foundation. Whenever, as a writer, you're forced to do something hard, instead of taking the easy route, mm. everything gets better. Yeah, mm -hmm. I can yeah. see that. I could definitely see that. And, and you hate it when you do it because it's Some, a rock. But sometimes, <laughs> well, you also sometimes have to figure out what uh, plot development and what action is best summarized. You know, because mm -hmm. 
and and that's a tough call sometimes. Uh, yeah, this is this is a thing because it's a, it's a truism supposedly, which is show don't tell. Exactly. Which is complete bullcrap. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you, if you spend the whole because book, no one has ever read a book that yeah. doesn't fill with telling. Exactly. You have to. Exactly. Uh, but the difference is what's good and what's bad, and it's hard for a novice to figure out the difference between the two. And I actually came up with a way. Should I tell you? Yeah. Okay. So the difference is, I actually call it probable cause. If you can't break into someone's house as a police officer unless you have reason to do so, there has to be a reason for you to invest, you know, to, to invade. Same things with writing. You cannot have a character think about anything unless they have a reason for it. In other words, if you're a young woman, you do not wake up the first thing in the morning and say, oh, I have wonderful blonde hair. <laughs> and I am living with my uncle that I've been living with for five years after my parents were killed in a car accident. That's not the first thought you have, right. folks. <laughs> That's telling. That's yeah. bad telling. Yeah. But, like a police officer who basically really wants to get someone, they may plant evidence. <laughs> so in this case, you're planting evidence. in contriving a way to make that work. So yeah. what you would do is, you would have a photograph of the parents on the table. Oh, I now look at that photograph. Well, that's not gonna do it either because that photograph is always there, right? They're, they're, that's right. not gonna cause them to it. And if they bump it and fall on the floor and they pick it up, oh, no, it's still not gonna work. But if that photo is always down because they can't face the pain of remembering and then they bump it and it lands face up, ah, now you've got a reason for that character to think about the past. So you can do things like that. And oddly enough, one of the great cliches is when a person looks in a mirror and describes themselves, everyone hates that. Yeah. But technically, that is not telling. That's actually a perfectly good showing because everyone looks in the mirror and we also like, oh God, what, what's that? Yeah, who, is that? Yeah, who is that person? <laughs> so I mean, you could do it. It's just been done so often that it's yeah. become trite, so. Interesting. We don't have any mirrors in yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, the, the unorthodox approach of, of <laughs> non-marketing uh, as an issue, or, or not, not having marketing in mind when you write, seems to be uh, part and parcel of your whole approach from the very beginning. Uh, yeah, know, I'm stupid. The, the <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's it's doing things differently is one way to stand I out have, the crowd. I have to, constantly done things wrong, yeah. and somehow she makes them work. So this is why I like the it, woman to my right. It's like in Toy Story when... <laughs> Buzz Lightyear says he's flying, and Woody falling. says, no, you're falling with style. We, we know how to fall, with, fall style. with style. Yeah. <laughs> but you bounce back. Uh, you know, uh, t talk a little bit about the whole uh, self-publishing aspect of, uh, of your approach, because you work with big publishers. Mm -hmm. I'm going to let Robin handle Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, Go ahead. She's the business end. So uh, there's a little bit of a misconception, because people always think that Michael started in self-publishing. And the reality is his very first book was through a very small press. And I was smart enough when I negotiated that contract to have it negotiated in a way that if that the rights could revert back to us in certain circumstances. Right. And uh, it was really good that I did that because life would be a lot different if that hadn't happened. But when they went to go to produce the second book, uh, they did not have the money for the press run. Mm. And again, I was very smart with the way I had written the contract such that it was very easy for me to reclaim that right. And we literally had one month because the, the guy who ran the press, very well-intentioned uh, person, but just not very financially stable, uh, he kept trying to get the money for the press run and trying to get the money for the press run. So he like put it off as far as he could. And then I was like, you know, where is the press proof? You know, it, we're, we're a month out. I should, this should be going should on be press. Like, yeah. And when he finally fessed up that he couldn't get the money, 
we got the rights back. Well, we had already planned some events around uh, an early April release, so we needed to hit that release day. So we had literally three to four weeks to completely self-publish the second book without knowing anything. No, those books were printed and sitting in a warehouse, right? For no, no. For the no? for the second book, they hadn't done the press. Oh, run they hadn't yet. even done. Couldn't afford it. No. Oh. So so uh, I had to learn print on demand. I had to learn how to do an ebook formatting. Right. I had to do everything in very mm. short order. And then what we had done was we, we found that releasing a book every six months was kind of a good pace because just as kind of the interest in one book started to wane, the other one was coming up, you right. know, as the next yeah. book's, you know, on the horizon. Yeah. And so the only way we could keep going with a six-month release cycle was to self-publish because there's no way we could find a publisher, have them get the book and signed. We had already gone through most of them with an agent anyway, and most of them had turned me down to begin with. Right. Right. Yeah. You hadn't developed the cachet at that point. To right. Yeah. I was nobody. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and everybody's nobody to start with. I'm still pretty much. Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> and and then um, when the first book sold out its print run, and again he didn't have money for an, a second print run, we got the rights back. So by the time the fifth book of a six-book series was released, we had been slowly building some momentum, right. and you know things were going really well. And I said to Michael, I said, "Well, you know, New York wasn't interested in you before, but now we've got some sales. Maybe we should try again." Yeah. And at the time, we had a foreign rights agent because some of the the smaller markets overseas had come asking for the books, and I said to her, "Do you know anyone in New York who would represent us?" for the English. And she mm. says, no, I'll, I'll do the English stuff. And so the two of us worked together and we put together a packet. And even though all the publishers had seen this series years and years ago, they probably, they don't remember it. And it's probably different people who are seeing it. But they oh, had no boy. interest in it before, right? Yeah. And she submitted it to like 13 editors and half of them expressed an immediate interest. Mm. Yeah. You know? Right. And, uh, and Orbit came in uh, with what's called a preempt. They wanted to get it off the table before it went into a bidding war. That's and nice. Yeah, and we <laughs> we really liked the publisher. They gave us a really incredible offer for a debut novel, so we didn't even bother going into a bidding war. We just took it then. And Orbit is the fantasy imprint of Heshat. Correct? Yes, that's Heshat, and um, and then they published the f the f Michael's Rayer Revelations. Then Michael started writing the Rayer Chronicles. The publisher wasn't too happy to find out about that because they said these are these are prequels. Nobody writes prequels. Oh, right. Those are one death. Of the other that have been ruined by <laughs> Star Wars. So that, that's <laughs> death. And I'm yeah. like, well, but Mike doesn't write what he thinks will sell. Michael writes what he wants to write. Right. And so, uh, so they did end up buying it. And um, and then the third and the fourth book of that series. I kept ourselves and we self-published those. And then when he started writing the Legends of the First Empire series, uh, I went to Heshet and I says, you know, you have released Michael's books in trade paperback so far, but I think it's time for him to move up to hardcover. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be the requirement of, I'm not selling the Legends of the First Empire to any publisher who doesn't do hardcover. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, we don't think Michael should be in hardcover. He sells really good in trade paperback. If mm -hmm. we pick up the series, that's what we'll do. We'll keep it in trade paperback. And I said, well, then just release us from the option because we're not interested in trade paperback. And then again, I put together another packet and introduced it to a, a number of different publishers. And again, we had a number of people immediately interested. And Penguin Random House um, 
came in and uh, with a really amazing offer. Again, another preempt, uh, which just kind of floored us. Yeah. And because they were the biggest publisher in the world, it was kind of a no-brainer. Right. So sure. then, so then we uh, we released that with them. But the willingness to walk away from a deal is yes, is, is that's something I'm really good at. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> she does. She's not so pleased. Yeah, we, we used to have arguments, and they, our our agents wouldn't believe us when it, when she would tell them that I said walk away from it. They go, oh, that's a good tactic. I'm like. She's like, you don't understand. Well, you were, the, you were the guy who was going to write an entire six-book series and not even try to yes. follow it. Not well, so. well it, it's funny because in almost every big five contract, there's this little thing about marketing. And to most authors, this would sound really cool. Mm -hmm. And it basically says, if the publisher decides to send you on tour, they will pay for your trip and, you know, and they'll pay for your expenses and stuff, and you will go on tour. And most authors would go, ooh, ooh yeah. I want that, you know, yeah. please. <laughs> and when Michael sees that in this contract, he's like, Nobody tells me where to go when. I mean, oh, no. he, he just does not, he does, I mean, that's like, the worst thing you can try to tell Michael is like, tell him he's not in control of his own time. Yeah, yeah. So he wanted me to insert five little words, and the author agrees. And when I told my agent I need in this marketing thing, you know, the, the publisher will decide what the marketing is, and if the author agrees, they will go on tour, blah, 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 blah. And my agent said, you are never going to get those words in there. Wow. And she says, this is standard. They, you know, they're probably not going to send them on tour anyways. So why do you care? I'm like, trust me, my <laughs> husband will not sign a contract with those words in it. I know he won't. I know he won't. She's like, well, you're never going to get him changed. I'm like, well, then we're not going to get this deal. And, and there was also another clause uh, in the contract relating to non-compete clauses. And as I mentioned with this other mm -hmm. publisher, I'm always really good about protecting the rights and being able to get back the rights and being able to do other things with my rights. Right. Yeah. So I needed those two things fixed. And it took me nine months of negotiation to get them to where we could sign the contract. But wow. through all of it, you know, we were walking away and the agent never believed us because, you know, and, and for a long time I couldn't figure out why they didn't believe us. And then one day it occurred to me that there really has never been a case where a self-published author had been offered a six-figure contract and they wouldn't just say yes. yes. <laughs> right? I mean, it, 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 it just it had never happened before. Well, what, what they didn't realize is I was actually taking a huge pay cut by going through them. Yeah. I was making far more money self-publishing. Wow. Yeah. I was going to lose like half amazing. a million dollars. Wow! Yeah. By doing so that, that is it was two hundred fifty thousand. Quarter of a million dollars. Quarter of a million okay. dollars. But well, and that's the thing. Like at the time, Orbit made the uh, bid on the on the project. It was selling good, but it wasn't selling great yet. Right. And um, and it took a long time for the contract to come in. So by the time the contract had came in, now nobody in the world knew that they had picked it up because it wasn't public yet because mm. we hadn't signed. But then those sales really went through the roof, and I started doing the math. And I says to Michael, I says, you know, if you sign this contract, we will probably lose two hundred to two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Interesting. You know, in income. And you said, Oh, yeah. I said, Well, tell me where can I go and spend two hundred fifty thousand dollars and get the kind of uh, you know exposure in marketing, right? That I can get by going through a big six and. There was really no answer to that. So that's what I did. That money was me reinvesting in my brand. Right. Interesting. Right. Now, as it turns so, out... So, so that's the whole thing is I was basically hiring Orbit as a marketing department 
and they're giving me crap. And I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> as far as you are concerned, they, I mean, they, they worked work for me. For you. Of course yeah. they did. And, and I, I maintain that every publisher has always worked for me. I know that's not a normal thing that most people would expect, but yeah, they are the people who you know are resold to sell my books, and they distribute and, and they sell those books, and to some degree they they promote it, but now, mostly that's mine. Now, as it turns out, we did not lose that money because between the additional revenue that we weren't counting on from audio and through foreign language sales mm -hmm. and other things mm -hmm. it turned out it turned out okay but it it could have very easily you know what is the other way you have just listened to part one of the all in your mind interview with michael j and robin sullivan tune in next week as we continue our discussion with michael and robin about all things legends of the first empire go on over to www.graphicaudio.net and grab both parts of the first book age of myth and part one of book two, Age of Swords, as well as all of our other graphic audio productions. Until next time, I'm Dwayne Beeman, and thanks for listening to All In Your Mind.